You're listening to Sex Gets Real with Dawn Sarah. That's me. This is a place where we explore sex, bodies, and relationships from a place of curiosity and inclusion, tying the personal to the cultural, where you're just as likely to hear tender questions about shame and the complexities of love as you are to hear experts challenging the dominant stories around pleasure, body politics, and liberation. This is about the big and the small, about sex and everything surrounding it we don't usually name. The funny, the awkward, the imperfect happen here in service to joy, connection, healing, and creating healthier relationships with ourselves and each other. So welcome to Sex Gets Real. Don't forget to hit subscribe. Hey you, welcome to this week's episode. It is an in-person interview, which is rare and exciting, and I love it. It is with Dr. Lori Brado, who I will tell you more about in just a minute, but she lives here in the Vancouver area, and we were able to meet up in person and have a delightful conversation about her new book, Better Sex Through Mindfulness, which we are going to be talking all about sexual pain, sexual dysfunction, um, feelings of not being able to get connected and not experiencing pleasure during sex. We go some really interesting places. We even talk about like fantasy and erotica versus mindfulness and how they can both be used as tools in the bedroom. So this is something that I am ridiculously excited about. Also, welcome to the new intro and there's an outro for the show. We will also be having some really exciting giveaways and prizes coming up over the next couple of months uh, from sex toys and books to money and all kinds of stuff. So totally stay tuned. And of course, for this week's bonus, head to patreon.com slash sex gets real. If you support at the $3 level and above, you get bonus audio content. Sometimes it's extended interviews with guests. Sometimes it's erotica writing and all kinds of other yummy, fun, random things. Plus, if you support it $5 and above, you can help me field listener emails by providing your thoughts and advice. And then I may read it on the air uh, in a future episode. So totally check that out. So let me tell you a little bit about Dr. Brado. Dr. Lori Brado completed her PhD in clinical psychology from the University of British Columbia, where her research primarily focused on psychophysiological aspects of sexual arousal in women diagnosed with sexual dysfunctions. Her psychology internship at the University of Washington specialized in the use of cognitive behavioral therapy for mood, anxiety, substance abuse, and psychotic disorders. Following her internship, Dr. Brado's fellowship in reproductive and sexual medicine at UW was mentored by Dr. Julia Hyman, director of the Kinsey Institute. As a registered psychologist, Dr. Brado offers psychological therapy to patients referred from both UBC departments of obstetrics and gynecology and psychiatry, as well as the BC Cancer Agency. Dr. Brado also sees private patients. Her new book, Better Sex Through Mindfulness, published by Greystone Books, is a scientifically informed translation of her research on mindfulness to improve women's and all of our sexuality. 
One last thing that I just want to mention, this book is incredible. And much like Come As You Are with Emily Nagoski, it is about research done on women and it's presented as being for women. The research, though, is something that works for any gender and anybody. Lori does mention in the episode that while she's been working for 15 years with women, that includes both cis and trans women. And she works in private clients with queer and non-binary folks, even though you're going to hear us talking a lot about women, just know that so much of this translates to us regardless of gender and body type. Uh, So I hope you enjoy. And here is my in-person chat with Dr. Lori Brado, which is why it sounds a little different than my chats usually do. Hey, everyone, I am here with Dr. Lori Brado. We are in person, which is such a treat. I don't get to do that very often. And this is going to feel amazing and magical. The last time I did this in person was with Zena Sharman, whom we adore. So this promises to be amazing. Anyway, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Dawn. You're welcome. We're here because you just had this incredible new book come out that's all about better sex through mindfulness. And I would love it if you could tell us a little bit about what got you studying mindfulness and sex. Great. Um, so I've been a sex researcher for some time. I started as a, as a graduate student. Actually, I started as an undergraduate student volunteer uh, watching rats have sex in these large cylindrical glass tubes. Um, and I did that for about six years. Um, And I looked at the influence of different medications, different stressors on sexual behavior in these beautiful little rodents who I loved. Um, And it was in the year 1998 that Viagra was approved uh, in the United States, a year later in Canada. And it was a watershed moment for the field of sex, sexual dysfunction, sexual health. Um, suddenly, countless, I mean, millions and millions of men who were struggling with erectile dysfunction had a discreet, easy, effective way of improving their sexual function. And then shortly after that, there was um, a large publication that indicated that over 40% of women struggle with sexual concerns. And that number was far higher than the comparable rate for men. So we had this effective and safe medication for men, far higher rates of sexual dysfunction in women. And that sort of took me on a, on a detour away from the rat lab into the field of women's sexual health. And um, I quickly discovered that not only were there no uh, safe and effective and approved medications for women, when you looked at the more psychological approaches, that literature was also quite sparse. There were not very many trials that really looked at effective treatments. Um, So then fast forward a few years, and I was at the University of Washington And as part of my training as a psychology resident, I had the amazing opportunity to study with Marsha Linehan, who developed um, a behavioral treatment for people who really struggled with identity and their sense of self and a lot of cutting behavior and um, suicidal tendencies. And as part of that behavioral treatment, mindfulness was a core aspect of that treatment. So essentially, we were teaching these um, individuals who struggled with wanting to hurt themselves that if they could pay attention in the present moment and really sit with their discomfort and their suffering and their suicidality, that that they could tolerate it, that they didn't have to hurt themselves. Um, and for me, it was, I mean, it was completely a profound experience that tuning in could be a way of coping. 
Um, and so at the same time as I was learning dialectical behavior therapy, I was continuing to do sex um, sex research studies with different populations of women with sexual concerns. And I was um, working closely with the Seattle Cancer Care Alliance, and in particular with women who, after their surgeries for gynecologic cancer, really talked about a, a profound disconnect from their sense of sexuality, their bodies, no longer feeling any pleasure at all. And I had a little bit of a light bulb moment where um, I was noticing some similarities in the, the people with suicidal tendencies who talked about a disconnect and the women with sexual concerns who talked about a disconnect. And um, because I had seen mindfulness be so effective in the first group, I thought, you know, what do we have to lose? Um, nothing by teaching these women who reported a complete loss to just tune in and, and see what happens. Um, and so brought these women sort of one by one into my office. I, of course, immersed myself in the, the practice and the theory and the reading around mindfulness um, and then began teaching these women uh, about it as I was learning about it myself. And the initial findings were, were striking. These women were saying, oh, my God, they're still feeling there. Like, I still feel pleasure. I thought it was dead. I thought it was gone. And that really started the, you know, the next um, 15 or so years of studying this much more formally. How incredible to have these wonderful mentors who were doing this really powerful work and then to kind of see this nexus of like, wow, maybe I can actually yeah. help people with pleasure yeah. using this mindfulness technique. What an incredible and important thing to study. It must feel, I don't know, it's, mindfulness isn't easy but it is simple and it's something that you can offer to people that isn't really expensive and it's not really complicated and it doesn't have all kinds of side effects. I mean, that, that is beautiful. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. It's, um, it is simple because in mindfulness, what are we talking about? We're talking about paying attention and doing so non-judgmentally. Um, so it's simple, but it's not easy. And particularly around sex, as you know far too well, we live in a judgmental culture ecosystem where um, sex inevitably evokes judgmental thoughts, um, mostly about ourselves, especially if you're a woman listening. Um, and so it, it's, a, it's a difficult practice, even if it is a simple practice. In your book, you talk a lot about mindfulness and techniques that people can try. And one of the things that really stood out is there's a lot of clarity when you ask people, what was your best sex? Describe that for me. What was going on? Why was that the best? So what was revealed by asking people about that? Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's interesting because, um, when I talk about mindfulness, whether it's to a client or to another researcher or to anyone for that matter, um, there's inevitably some skepticism. Like, what are you, like, what are you talking about? Isn't sex totally biological? And isn't it, you know, rooted in the blood vessels and the neurotransmitters in our brain, et cetera, et cetera? And all of those things are absolutely important. But I often ask that question. You know, can you think in your mind of any encounter you've had in your life? related to sex, whether it was with someone else, on your own, with multiple people, what have you, the details are irrelevant, um, and, and describe that situation and what made it so fantastic and mind-blowing. And people will say, oh, I was in the zone. I was so there. I was so connected with my partner. Um, I felt every morsel and tingle of pleasure. 
And all of that is the language of mindfulness, right? Being so present that you can, you know, follow a single sensation microsecond by microsecond and, um, and that feeling of it being, being so alive and, and so connected, that is mindfulness. And so when I point that out to said skeptical person, they say, oh, that's what that is. I didn't even know I was practicing it. And, um, and that is true. We all inherently have this, you know, ability, if you will, to be mindful, right? Um, look at any child in a bed of flowers or doing anything for that matter. They, we, we were, we're inherently born with this ability to be present and then experience in life, you know, and culture and media layer on the judgments and then put on top of that all the technology, which um, moves us to multitask. Um, we, we, we feel like we lose that ability, but it's, it's inherent in us. So again, I think, you know, regardless of the, the, the quality or the type of sex, um, I think most people have, have brought that ability to be mindful into a sexual encounter. So it's a matter of how do, how do we evoke that again and deliberately practice that? What would your recommendation be? Because I had a lot of questions around this very thing. And I know you encounter this as well. So for people who feel like I just don't have the time, that time piece, because we're so busy, and often specifically for women, there's so much emotional and household labor that's going on that's on their mind. So for people who are worried about the amount of time that it takes to really get present and turn off those distractions, what would you suggest? So, um, you know, first of all, um, I think those same concerns around time apply to sex. And a lot of people that we talk to, um, first of all, there's this prevailing myth that sex has to happen at night and it has to happen late at night, you know, after you watch the mundane or sometimes emotional news. Um, and, you know, and it happens at a time when our, our resources and our energy levels and our ability to really, you know, invest energy are at their lowest, right? And then sometimes we wonder why the quality of sex is so poor. So we rush it, we get it over with because we've got to get it on the calendar, right? Or else, you know, there's all kinds of consequences if we don't meet a certain standard of, of what we think is normal for sexual frequency. And so I often talk to people about, you know, what else in your life that's important to you do you not plan and do you not prioritize? And, and we should apply that same kind of importance and prioritization to sex. And I would say that that also applies to mindfulness, that um, again, although it's a simple practice, it's, it's, it's a challenging, it's not an easy practice and it does require the time, the investment of time. Um, and so for someone who is brand new to whether it's mindfulness or meditation or any kind of formal, like, formal contemplative practice, um, it does require the time to, to put into it, the quote on the pillow practice time. Um, and you know, when we invest that time, the formal practice, we then become slightly, it becomes easier, a bit more automatic to then bring that into the different encounters of our life, whether it's while we're eating a meal or while we're going for a walk or while we're having sex or while we're having a conversation with someone else. So the formal practice is important. Uh, I do often get asked, well, what's the minimum number of minutes? Like, What's that sweet spot? You know, how much do I really have to practice? And, you know, we, we don't know the answer. Mindfulness researchers have um, 
tried to investigate that. It's kind of hard to study because how do you randomize people to five minutes versus 10 minutes versus 15 minutes and control everything? So we can make our best guess. One of the things we do know that the, um, the, the mindfulness scientists have taught us is that more frequent practice, even if they're shorter, seems to be more beneficial than, you know, a single long practice, like meditating for an entire day. Uh, it's much more beneficial to say formally have a mindfulness practice 10 minutes a day, but every day. Um, and so, you know, the question of, I don't have enough time. I don't have a magic wand that gives people more time, but I do know, well, we know that we also waste a lot of time doing things that maybe we, um, feel are important and, you know, don't get me wrong. I love spending an hour on Twitter, but we, we can waste a lot of time on social media or doing things that are less important, important. So it, it in part is a little bit about prioritizing um, sex and prioritizing this as a not only a skill to be more present in sex, but it's also a way of being, right? So, I mean, how great would it be to enjoy every meal without quickly scarfing it down and forgetting what we've eaten, right? So it's something, it's a way of being that we can take into our life. Okay. I don't know if you've seen it, but... As I was researching for our talk today, I went to Amazon and I was checking out reviews, which overall are fantastic. But I read one review of your book that made me feel some feelings, and I wanted to bring it up just for people who are listening, because the review said women need to take responsibility for their own deficiencies and stop blaming others, which is why they liked your book. And that was kind of like, you so missed the point. For people who are tuning in, so much of the book is really about being present with yourself and tuning into sensations. They don't even have to have like genital or sexual sensations, but just what is the feel of a hand on your back and really able to get really clear about what it's like to be in your body and in your anxieties and in your fears. So how would you respond to this reading of, well, this is your thing to work on. This is your problem to fix. Go sit on the cushion. It has nothing to do with me. Yeah. Uh, wow. I didn't read that review. I'm kind of glad I didn't. Yeah. And I'm noticing a little bit of increase in blood pressure right now as I'm Me too. <laughs> trying to sift through that, you know, and, and unfortunately I, I do hear that in my, my clinical practice quite a bit when, you know, um, let's say, a, a, let's say a woman who is in a relationship with a man, although not exclusively, uh, or not necessarily, and um, she'll come to the first session, and you know, I'll have spoken to her on the phone, and I'll say, "Oh, you're here. Is your partner on their way?" And she'll say, "No, you know, he decided that this was my issue, and then I would do some sessions, and then we would check in in a couple of months once I've gotten better." And it's like, "All right." This is going to be an educational session. We're not actually not actually going to do any mindfulness. We're just going to provide some education about how women's sexuality unfolds and, you know, um, what is women's sexual response. And, um, you know, I think that there is a belief. Um, unfortunately, it persisted within the sex therapy field for a long time that we're born with a set level of desire, right? We're born and we're given this... Um, unit of desire, right? And so if your desire is down, um, 
you know, that, that, that's, that you've got to get it back up to this level and you have to work really hard to get it to this level. Uh, and so the idea is that women who have low desire, that something, you know, likely intrinsic in her has caused it to decrease and she's got to work to get it to that level. Um, it's completely false. Desire, as we know, in women and men, regardless of gender, et cetera, orientation, is responsive. And it responds to triggers. Sometimes those triggers are external, right? So a relationship, if there's something in the relationship or that a partner does or says that turns you on. Sometimes those triggers are in the environment, right? Seeing something sexy that turns you on. Sometimes those triggers are internal, having an erotic thought, having a fantasy, having a subtle change in your body that creates tension that might give you a twinge of sexual arousal that then turns you on. But the point of all of that is that desire is responsive, just like emotions are, right? I'm sad because something sad happened to me. Um, or I saw something or heard something that made me feel sad. We don't, we're not born with a set level of sadness, right? Obviously, we might fall um, along the, the curve around our predispositions to feeling sad versus not, so our threshold for feeling that. And that's the same with desire. Um, some of us, it might take fewer triggers to turn on the desire or, or less triggers. So um, understanding that desire is responsive is fundamental to your question around the woman who says, well, it's all in me. And so when we really understand the importance of those triggers, we quickly and immediately see, no, of course not, it's not all within her, that um, the environment her relationships with other people, her relationships and connection to her sexual partners or intimate partners, all of that is so important when it comes to her own feelings of desire. Um, so where does the book fit within that, especially since the book says for women in the title? And I, I can see how a reader might perceive it as, you know, women just need to go off into a cave and read this book and sit on a pillow in a cave and then they'll come out with their restored level of desire and they'll re-enter into their relationship and everything will be great right it's yeah. so silly <laughs> isn't totally it it's ridiculous. so it's so so <laughs> silly and I'll, I'll say um and i can say this now since the book is out i'm not totally happy with the title because uh well first of all it's not just a book for women yeah first you know first right. and foremost um and um and you know mindfulness it's, it's a bit paradoxical because mindfulness is about not changing anything. It's just yeah. about paying attention. And so this notion of trying to get to a better level, well, by paying attention, we might make experience sex and desire in a different way. But it's not like, you know, a prescription to get women to a certain level again so they can reenter into their relationship. So I think what I would say to the person sitting in front of me who says, you know, I just want to do this on my own and fix things, and then I'll be able to re-engage in my relationship. Um, my response is, you know, mindfulness can be a fabulous tool for helping you to reconnect with the feelings in your body, um, and it can also attune you to um, feelings in the relationship, positive and negative, yes. that might be directly affecting your desire. And And I've heard that story now from countless women that mindfulness has actually... Um, allowed them to notice things that are not okay in their relationship that yeah. they were putting up with or, 
you know, wiping under the rug or having a sense of, well, it's my duty and my obligation to deliver. So I'm just going to ignore all of these terrible things that are happening. So when you observe, when you start to pay attention, yeah, you can notice some great things. You might also notice some upsetting things as well. Right. Maybe there are some things that really need to be addressed before we start talking about sex. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. One of the things that rang so true through the book and also just in so many of the experiences that I've had is your research has shown that through being able to really develop that trusting relationship with body and also being able to develop that that key attention, which so many of us are really terrible at these days, whether the frequency changed or not and whether the satisfaction had a small gain or a significant gain when it came to sex that overall there was so much more ease in just stopping the avoidance and lowering the anxiety. And that could be such a massive win for people. What are some of the things that really surprised you as you met with all of these people over the past 15 years? What came up and you were like, whoa, I was not expecting that. Yeah. Well, you mentioned body and... um I think I was surprised and maybe I shouldn't be at how hard women are on themselves when it comes to body, both external physical body and internal body sensations, really horribly judgmental of themselves. And, um, you know, many stories of avoidance of you know, sex with the lights off or, um, you know, don't touch there, even though it feels good, but don't touch there because I don't like that part of my body. Um, Or let's kind of quickly get this over with, again, even though it's pleasurable for me because, you know, I I don't want you to notice this part of my body that I don't like. And so um, those stories are very sad. They make me very, very sad. And and I've heard them in younger women and older women, women across cultures, premenopausal, postmenopausal women, um, almost universal and and universal in a really not okay way. We need to stop being so hard on ourselves about our bodies. And it's directly, it directly impacts sex because when we shorten what feels good, um, and we sort of don't give our bodies and our brain the time that they need to communicate with one another. And we know that there's a really important feedback loop, right? The body, when the body starts to respond through touch or through what have you, and starts to you know, produce physical sensations, and the brain starts to pick up those signals, which mindfulness really helps with, um, tuning into those signals. The brain then further communicates down to the body, um, you know, increase in the feeling. Now it's not just touch, but it's pleasure and it's sensation. And we foreshorten that, which negative body image um, directly affects the the outcome is a completely unsatisfying encounter completely and so again it's um it's something that maybe i shouldn't be surprised with but i i really um i i wish we had a a method of i mean of, of pushing back against is around you know negative body image is actually disastrous for for sexuality for healthy sexuality um so that's been you know, a surprising finding. Um, I think a totally taken in a different direction, another surprising finding is um, the individuals who were really, really skeptical at the outset, right? 
the person who says, well, I tried yoga once and I hated it and I never went back, you know, Um, or I'm, you know, I'm frankly just too busy to do this. I literally don't have five minutes in my day where I can do this. Um, And the individual who says, how on earth is breathing and paying attention to breathing going to help my sex, right? So different flavors of skepticism. And it's something that we've actually studied um, empirically. We've actually measured skepticism at the outset, and we've measured um, confidence in the mindfulness approach and beliefs around, do you think that this is really going to help you? And we've, we've measured those different things and then actually um, correlated those indices with improvements in desire, reductions in sexual distress, improvements in sexual satisfaction, et cetera. Um, and, you know, I couldn't have asked for a more perfect ending to the story. It turns out it's irrelevant. Oh. It doesn't matter your level of skepticism at the beginning, how much you bought into it, how, how many years of, you know, Buddhist form, formal meditation practice you had versus the total skeptic. Um, they improved on those measures of desire and satisfaction and distress to the same degree. So it's awesome. It's an awesome, (laughs) awesome finding um, that, you know, you don't have to be a believer at the outset. All you have to have is a willingness to try it. And um, one of the ways that we introduce it and try it, and the book talks about the raisin, and it's certainly not original. It's, you know, it's a a component of mindfulness-based cognitive therapy, mindfulness-based stress reduction, formal uh, programs of mindfulness that have been around for you know 20 30 years and we will spend you know about 15 minutes um, interacting with a one single raisin one raisin 15 minutes you know and you start by looking at it and looking at how the light bounces off the ridges and then you roll it around in your hand and you feel the weight of it and then you hold it to your ear to hear are there any sounds of the raisin and you smell it um, and you hold it against your lips and at that moment of holding it against your lips something amazing happens the body changes you start salivating and you haven't even put it in your mouth yet and then when you finally put it in your mouth and your mouth is now fully lubricated (laughs) right um and and you you bite into it and when you do it slowly and deliberately you notice oh my gosh raisins are are amazing you know they may not be delicious but they're amazing right like how can this one little um, shriveled and dried piece of grape um, produce so many sensations. And so in our groups, we always start with the raisin because um, through experience in the mindfulness, so actually doing the practice and doing that raisin exercise, um, the women learn that, oh my gosh, like first of all, I have the ability to pay attention. And secondly, something that I've interacted with countless times how many times have we dug into you know um into a bag of raisins and popped 10 into our mouth without noticing and so we could interact with this object um, that we've seen many times in a new way and it produced so many sensations and i think that exercise um is the critical exercise to turn the naysayers and the skeptics into you know being open to try this I did that raisin exercise about 15 years ago. I was at Kripalu, which is a mindfulness and yoga center in the Berkshires in Massachusetts. And we did that exact raisin exercise. 
I remember that moment of biting into the raisin and how there was marvel and wonder so present in that moment. And that's something that I wish for so many of us to feel with our own bodies and with a partner. This like inherent sense of wonder and marvel of just being in that moment and what a beautifully simple way for people to be able to engage with that and not feel like they're going to get it wrong or that they're going to fail because it is hard to sit and really be mindful for an extended period of time. So I love that you start with that raisin exercise because my experience of that so long ago was profound and it's just a fucking raisin. I know. <laughs> I know. I know. It is. It's shriveled up. And yeah. actually, I got to tell you something really funny when we, um, so we do the practice and um, we actually, we dive right into it. So we don't provide any background before we do the raisin exercise around, here's mine, here's how mindfulness is going to work. And here's what you can expect. We just, our, our belief is that through the practice and through your firsthand experience, um, you'll be able to make that connection. So we, we do the raisin exercise and then we move on to um, something we call an inquiry, which is where um, we'll ask the women, what did you notice? Um, how is eating a raisin like this different from how you eat raisins in your life? And then thirdly, how was eating the raisin in the way you just did? How is that relevant to your sexuality? And you know, of course they make all the connections, but what's really interesting is how many women will say, it looks like a vulva. I never noticed. It looks exactly like a vulva. I love that answer because, you know, every raisin is different. The folds and ridges are different. There's tons of asymmetry. Uh, So, you know, after a little chuckle, uh, I say, well, that's not really the point of the exercise, but, you know, fantastic that you notice that about this raisin that, you know, and, and what's interesting is when we start to pay attention, it can trigger memories, right? It can trigger memories that were otherwise buried away. Um, and sometimes for sex, that's a good, a good thing. Sometimes it's not a good thing. And we sometimes have to manage how, um, elicited memories may impact us in a negative way. Um, but again, there's so much safety in the present moment, right? We can tolerate the present moment because look, there it's gone, right? That moment's gone and you got through it. And, um, and so, you know, um, for the, the women that are so focused on the outcome and, oh my God, am I going to respond? Is a partner going to leave me? Is this going to end in disaster? The message of come back, like come back to the here and now. Not only can you um, tolerate this moment, when you start to notice and observe, it can be amazing. Just like noticing the raisin in that moment, was a, it was amazing, right? You can actually notice things and it's just a hypothesis, but maybe when you notice things in the present moment, it changes the outcome, right? Absolutely. I think that's, that is such an invitation because you're right. I mean, If there's anything I'm really skilled at, it's spending a lot of time in the past and in the future. And what gets revealed through your research and your book and the raisin exercise and moments like that is when we really give ourselves the opportunity to just pay attention, incredible things reveal themselves that we might have just zoomed past in our eagerness to get to the next thing on our list or that little check mark that's in our head, the next to do. And something I encounter a lot with listeners who write into the show and also something that comes through over and over and over again in your book with so many women 
And I think this is based on a lot of cultural assumptions and mythology about so many women end up in positions where they're having sex out of a sense of obligation, where I don't really want to have sex, but if I don't give it to my husband, he's going to suffer, so I'll do it for him. And how doing that over and over again pushes them away from their own pleasure and creates this immense sense of dread. So for people who are in that place of, I just mostly have sex for him because he needs it and I could live without it or I'm doing it because I should since I'm in a relationship. What is the process like that you've found for people who come back to their pleasure, even if they've maybe even never been there before? Mm -hmm. You know, it's like finding that long lost treasured toy in the closet that you completely forgot about and you discover it, you know, decades later. Um, it's a feeling of, of wonderment and, and amazement and, um, you know, a bit of giddiness maybe. And, you know, I hear that from so many people like, yep, I'm having sex, but don't enjoy it. And then I'll say, well, why would you have sex that you don't enjoy, right? Like when we think about the reward centers in our brain, we want the things that give us pleasure. So maybe your low desire for sex is low desire for the sex you're having. Yes. Not low desire for sex per se. So let's look at the sex you're having and figure out how we can, you know, make it sex worth having. And um, so then, you know, we start to examine those feelings of obligation. And that always takes me as a, as a psychologist down the pathway of, well, is this consensual? Yeah. Right? So, there, you know, is this, is this sex you don't want, but it's still consensual? Or is this really non-consensual? Like, are you worried about the outcome? Are you worried about your safety? Are you worried about the stability of your home or your family or your well-being? If a partner, you know, unfortunately sometimes becomes belligerent or difficult to live with, yes. those, those stories are heartbreaking. Yeah. Um, and it's no surprising that these women have lost desire, right? A medication is not going to <laughs> make her, you know, enjoy that situation right. at all. So first of all, we sometimes take a detour into some conflict resolution, communication training around stop having sex that you don't want to be having. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and then we s slowly move towards how can sex become something worth having for you? What's in it for you? And then that um, often takes us down another interesting direction around women feeling guilty for wanting something that's per that's a bit feels a bit selfish. They'll yeah. say it feels selfish to ask for what I want or you know, to um, move or do things in a, in a way that make, will make it feel better for me. What about my partner? And it's like, well, you've been doing this for your partner and what your partner wants for 38 years. You know, I think you're entitled to be a little bit selfish and let's lose the language of selfish, yes. right? Selfish is so negative. It's so laden with, you know, you're a terrible person and you're completely self-centered. Um, when you have a satisfying sex life, however you define it, it's linked to your mood. Yeah. It's linked to your sense of self, linked to your well-being, linked to your optimism. It's linked to your communication levels with other people. Sex it doesn't exist in an in isolated bubble. It's 
it's a part, it's an intrinsic part of who many of us are. Um, and so, you know, view it through that way that you will be a happier and overall um, a person that you love, that you, that, that you can have some self-love towards by asking for what you want. Yes. Right? So it's not selfish. It's actually an act of, you know, it's, it's a fundamental part of, of, of being a whole being. Yep. Agreed. There are a lot of us struggling to find our voices and me included, asking for what I want, navigating boundaries, especially when other people have feelings about those boundaries. And I just think it's so clear with the mindfulness that if I'm just utterly present and really tuned into my body, my desires and my edges become so much clearer because I'm feeling what I'm feeling and I'm noticing and I'm able to communicate that instead of telling stories and guessing and hoping and not really being sure because I've cut myself off from my body. There is so much power in that, too, of just being utterly in your moment and in your body. Totally agree. Yeah. <laughs> and I wish everyone could experience that. <laughs> All the time. <laughs> so uh, one of the things that I wanted to bring up for people that are listening is Come As You Are by Emily Nagoski. It's one of my favorite books. Emily is one of my favorite people. And even though that book is similar to yours and the research is about women, it's written for women. The book is so universal in so many ways. And I really do absolutely find that true with your book. Whether you identify as a man or you're trans, non-binary, whether you're asexual or single, there is so much richness in the research and in really paying attention and just being there. What do you want to offer around mindfulness to people who don't identify as women or maybe who don't identify as sexual even? What can mindfulness offer for them? Yeah. Great question, and I, and I have been asked many times, you know, well, what about mindfulness for men, or for mindfulness for non-binary folks, or mindfulness for other types of people in in different relationship configurations? And you know, part of the well, big part of the reason that um, the term women is in the title is because a lot of our research has been well with self-identified women, um, cis or trans women, um, and and women across sexual orientations and relationship configurations. So in our in our research, it's been focused on people who self-identify as women. So because the book is um, really based on the science and is a translation of the scientific findings to a general audience, um, it's, that's a large part of the reason why women is in the title. However, um, all of the same processes that we're talking about, about in terms of the importance of paying attention, the, the incredible value of being non-judgmental, um, the impact of multitasking on all of us, regardless of what type of human being you label yourself as, um, and the uh, importance and, and the role of paying attention non-judgmentally. You know, there is no one type of person that could do this or could benefit from that. So in my clinical practice, I see all types of people um, and use mindfulness um, almost universally, regardless of the type of person that walks in the door to see me. Um, now, the research hasn't been done on all those different groups, although increasingly now over the last two years or so, we have been running groups for men, um, uh, men either who have uh, difficulties with erections, um, 
situationally. So these are men who have no difficulty with an erection during masturbation, but as soon as they're with a partner or more than one partner, they lose their erection. So we've done some research with those groups and uh, currently have been working with prostate cancer survivors um, who will likely never get their erections back. Um, And so they face the reality that, you know, how do we continue to be sexual without a rock-hard boner, right? right? Yeah. And guess what? There's a buffet table of different ways you can be sexual without a rock-hard boner. Right, and um, and so mindfulness has been challenging with that group because they're so intent on getting their erections back, yeah. and, and that that study uh, that's currently well underway is the men with their partners as well, and so the partners play a really important role in encouraging um, the prostate survivor to think about sex in, in a multitude of different ways. So. Um, yeah, so the short answer is, you know, the book is really for anyone, anyone willing to try on that new way of being that includes paying att- attention non-judgmentally, moment by moment. And I'll say a thing about sex, too, because, again, when we think sex, I think for many people it elicits a certain image of, you know, intercourse, and that's it. And I don't think about sex that way. And I know you don't think about sex that way (laughs) at all. So much broader than that. Um, The book, there's many sections of the book also for sex on your own, Mm -hmm. right? And that's the reality for many people that they're having sex on their own, right? And mindfulness can be um, an equally important tool for that type of sex as it would be for, say, penis and vagina intercourse. Okay. I would love to talk a little bit about depression. I've received a number of emails over the years from people who are experiencing depression and it's having an impact on their sex because of it, either because of the medication they're on or because of a number of other factors. It can be really complicated. And in the book, you talk at length about the impact of um, feeling stress around sex and how that can lead to depression, but also the way that depression then impacts sex and how it's this circular thing. What are some of the things that you've discovered through your research around depression and sex? So long before I started researching mindfulness and sexual desire, um, there has been a wealth of research that has essentially proven, and we're always careful with that word proven in science because we don't actually prove anything, but it's been found over and over and over and over again that depression and changes in sexual function tend to go hand in hand. And so when we think about depression, you know, stripped down, its definition is really, you know, a lack of interest in things that you, that you used to be interested in. And sex is one of those things that used to give you, maybe give you pleasure. And so for the person who's experiencing a depression, it makes sense that their, that their interest in sex has gone down. And then, as you mentioned, sometimes the antidepressant treatments, which can be really effective, sometimes absolutely essential for some people in lifting their mood, can further wreak havoc on sexual response. So getting in the way of ability to orgasm, getting in the way of physical sexual arousal, which then can further reduce sexual desire. So they do go hand in hand. We also have found in research that uh, individuals who have sexual difficulties, if this becomes chronic, that also can trigger 
uh, low mood or maybe even trigger the onset of a depression. So there's a tight bi-directional relationship between depression and sexual problems. Um, so again, when we think about mindfulness, mindfulness well before I, I began to research it uh, within the context of sex has been studied in the context of depression. And there have now been several studies that have found mindfulness to be a very effective way of preventing future depressive relapses. So this is a person who has a history of, say, bouts of depression. Uh, ongoing practice of mindfulness can actually prevent depression from coming back. It can also be a way for the person who's in the throes of a depression to get through it. And there have been a few studies now that have compared it directly to medication and find it to be more effective than that. So it's it's becoming, you know, frontline care. It's something that when the depression um, expert opens their toolbox, it's sitting on the top, right? So really effective. And uh, so in our own research, because many of the people we see with low desire um, have had a history of depression or maybe even have symptoms of low mood at the present moment, we've always measured it. Um, and we have consistently found across all of our studies um, that there's an improvement in, in their mood. We've also began studying, um, could their improvement in mood be the reason why their sex improves, right? So we do something statistically fancy called mediation analyses where you can actually measure mood throughout the uh, meditation treatment, mindfulness treatment, and look at changes in mood as a predictor of changes in sexual function. Um, and we're starting to find that, that that is one of the mechanisms that um, sex improves. N not unanimously across all people because not everyone is depressed at the outset when they come into our groups, but it's an important mechanism. Um, so yeah, for, for anyone who's listening, who might be struggling with depression, either now or in the past, I'd invite them to consider starting a, a mindfulness practice and, 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 um, and to observe that it, it'll very likely have this, you know, two prong impact on their mood, on their sexual function, and also on other aspects of quality of life, like sense of stress, sense of well being. Um, and and uh, so it's got, you know, these kind of multiple positive beneficial outcomes. I think we have time for one last question. Squeeze it in before the end of the, our hour. So I would love to talk a little bit about fantasy versus mindfulness and attention, because often fantasy is about leaving and going someplace really exciting and using that as a way to have some excitement or to feel something new, to try new things out that maybe we do or we don't actually want to do in real life or both. So mindfulness is about being very present and feeling what's happening in the now and being in your body. How can we navigate that dichotomy of fantasy being exciting and allowing us to go someplace new and mindfulness really inviting us to get super present and attentive? Great question. I, I'm so glad you asked it because, you know, mindfulness as a, as a way of being doesn't necessarily mean that we're actively practicing it per se, 24-7 or during the entire sexual encounter. 
I'm a big fan of fantasy. Um, fantasy allows one to go to a place that maybe they wouldn't in their actual real lives. It can be very sexually arousing. So in terms of stimulating the body, which in terms, in turn stimulates the mind, um, novelty we know is really important, especially for someone who's been in a long-term relationship. Um, and fantasy allows one to experience something totally new in a very maybe old and familiar relationship. Um, and lots of research studies have found that fantasy can be really powerful for cultivating arousal and pleasure. Um, so I'm a big fan of fantasy. And in my clinical work, spent a lot of time talking about, you know, can you dip your toe in the water around fantasy? And can you start to introduce this? And what would that look like? And can that evolve into role play and et cetera, et cetera. Um, that said, you know, make no mistake, fantasy is not mindfulness. Fantasy is about going somewhere else and mindfulness is about staying right there. So they're very different. Um, but to have the agility uh, and ability to, you know, when you're fantasizing, fully immerse yourself there, fully go there um, in the same way that, let's say, you know, an athlete before a big race might have an imagery and an exercise in imagining themselves performing well at their sport and crossing the finish line, right? That's not mindfulness. That's imagery going somewhere else um, or hypnosis for that matter, which is also not mindfulness. Hypnosis, again, is about going somewhere else. So all really important um, tools um, on, on their own. Uh, but they're they're not mindfulness. So again, I would say to the listener, yeah, dance and dabble in fantasy and go there, and then alternate maybe at a different time with experimenting being right there and noticing every sensation as if for the first time. Oh, oh, that's so beautiful. It's wonderful to have, and I think the takeaway really is when we have the opportunity to invite ourselves to be present and to try different tools and to have different skills, it gives us this opportunity to be open to so many more possibilities. And then I think also what's really clear around so much of what you're offering, both with the mindfulness and the attention and the opportunity to use something like fantasy or erotica, is when we can loosen the reins a little bit on those expectations that we hold around all of this having to look a very specific way. It just sets us up for anxiety and feelings of failure. I love the invitation. People do all the things. Yeah. Yeah. Do it all. <laughs> right. Do it Just all. Just expand that buffet table. Exactly. Right? <laughs> For people who want to stay in touch and um, find out more about the research you're doing and the book, how can they find you online or learn more about the lab? So um, my Twitter handle is Dr. Lori Brado. Um, love engaging with people on Twitter. Our lab website is uh, bradolab.com, and that's where people can read about the current studies we're doing. We also post links to the findings and create videos of the findings. Um, and then I also have a separate website that talks about kind of my own practice, my clinical practice, and that's just lauriebrado.com. I will have all of those links in the show notes so people can check it out, as well as a link to the book. This is going to be very high in my arsenal, folks. When you're writing in with questions, you will hear me offering this book down the road many times over. So thank you so much for being here on the show and offering all of your wisdom. This has been wonderful. My absolute sincere pleasure, Dawn. Thank you so much. You, you 
used to light up like a spark. Now you're blue, treading water in the dark. A huge thanks to the vocal few, the married duo behind the music featured in this week's intro and outro. Find them at vocalfew.com. Head to patreon.com slash sexgetsreal to support the show and get awesome weekly bonuses. As you look towards the next week, I wonder, what will you do differently that rewrites an old story, revitalizes a stuck relationship, or helps you to connect more deeply with your pleasure? So don't be ashamed.